Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Julio. Today, we're going to be talking about tobacco cessation and telehealth, specifically in the context of COVID-19. First, I'm going to provide a little bit of background on telehealth, specifically how it relates to tobacco cessation, and also share some changes that have been made as a result of the public health emergency of COVID-19. Then, I'll be joined by Margaret Antonucci, who's a psychiatric nurse practitioner with the Smilo Cancer Hospital associated with Yale University. She'll share her experiences treating tobacco dependence via telehealth during the public health emergency. So what is telehealth? Telehealth includes a number of different types of interactions between a patient and provider that mimic and supplement in-person interactions. These things can be remote patient monitoring, um, asynchronistic store and forward technology, a live video chat. Um, additionally, some people, when thinking of telehealth, also include email, phone, fax interactions, as well as mobile apps and social media. Today, as we talk about telehealth, we're mainly going to be looking at interactions that would replace an in-person interaction between a patient and a provider. Sometimes people refer to this as telemedicine. However, I'll be referring to both um, interchangeably today. Health has a number of different advantages in general, um, and then there are additional advantages to using telehealth during a public health emergency like the COVID-19 epidemic that we're currently facing. First and foremost, um, telehealth can help alleviate provider shortages, especially in areas that might have less access to some providers and maybe potentially specialists as well. Additionally, it can provide more convenient access to patient care. The role of telehealth has expanded during the COVID-19 pandemic. The way the American Lung Association views telehealth are through three main goals or focus points. First, telehealth has the ability to allow patients who have pre-existing conditions and need continuous medical care access to that health care without having to go into a provider's office or a hospital setting and potentially expose themselves to the novel coronavirus. The second consideration around telehealth are patients that have a mild or asymptomatic case of the novel coronavirus or COVID-19. These individuals may still need to access care from a provider around their case of COVID-19. However, if they can do it in a remote fashion, that reduces the risk of exposure to those providers. The third bucket around telehealth is making sure that we don't leave any patients behind, recognizing that not everybody has access to broadband or technology to be able to use telehealth securely and effectively, and not everyone has the technology literacy to be able to use telehealth effectively. So to make sure that there are considerations as we move forward with a greater adoption of telehealth and a greater utilization of it. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, Telehealth was used somewhat sparingly and reimbursed somewhat sparingly as well. Generally speaking, I'm going to talk about three different categories of insurance type um, around reimbursement and kind of what's allowable in the telehealth space. The first is going to be Medicare. The second will be Medicaid programs. And then thirdly, talking a little bit about private insurance. It's important to note there's really no kind of overarching requirements for private insurance at the national level. Some states do have those requirements. However, a lot of private insurance will follow whatever Medicare does. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, there's a number of 
provisions around Medicare and telehealth that are temporarily being waived so care can be accessed quicker and easier. Some of the key provisions in the Medicare program that have been waived are that HHS has provided enforcement discretion for providers who are not using HIPAA-compliant technology. So a provider might use a Zoom call or a FaceTime to talk with a patient. There are some services that can be billed as normal telehealth visits if they're audio only and don't have a video component. Services include tobacco cessation counseling, both codes 99406 and 99407. Additionally, there's flexibility where the patient can be in the Medicare program. So the patient can access telehealth from their home as opposed to having to go to a provider's office and then be connected with a provider at a different location. Additionally, providers can provide telehealth from any location and it is no longer required that they're in an office. There are additionally, there are licensure requirements that have been waived. So a provider does not necessarily need to be licensed in the state that the patient resides. However, providers do need to have a valid license in the state that they are licensed in. States are just waiving in licenses from different states. And lastly, the most important thing kind of around Medicare and some of the changes that are happening um, as a result of the COVID-19 public health emergency are that the number of patients that are eligible to receive telehealth has also grown exponentially. Historically, patients in the Medicare program could only receive telehealth if they lived, if they were in a geographic area, typically designated rural, or if they were in an area that had a provider shortage. Additionally, patients needed to have an existing relationship with that provider before they could participate in a telehealth visit. So now there's a lot more flexibility in the Medicare program. Similarly, states have waived a number of requirements in their state Medicaid programs. I will note that all of this will vary by state. So if you're in a state and billing Medicaid, you're going to want to look at your specific program in your specific state. And so just I'm going to go over kind of a couple of key ones. And then, you know, per, there are definitely some resources, um, both at the Kaiser Family Foundation and the Center for Connected Health Policy that have really tracked some of these policies in very specific detail. So all 50 states and the District of Columbia have provide some licensure flexibility, similar to what the Medicare program is doing. Additionally, most states and the District of Columbia have provided guidance on how to expand telehealth in their state. There are 38 states in the District of Columbia, Columbia that have um, payment parity for at least some services, meaning a provider would be paid the same amount for the telehealth visit as they would have been for the in-person visit. And then lastly, there are 20 states that have either waived or lowered telehealth co-pays to help, again, um, encourage patients to use telehealth as opposed to using going into the office at the current time. And then lastly, just talking a little bit about private insurance. Um, again, while there's no federal requirement for telehealth, some states have, have had the insurance commissioner or the governor um, require private insurance plans that are licensed in-state to provide some level of telehealth to patients. Um, additionally, many plans states have voluntarily talked about expanding coverage, specifically during the public health emergency. Most of the policies I just talked about are temporary for the public health emergency. Conventional thinking suggests that a lot of these policies may be made permanent 
as patients and providers have found telehealth to be both convenient and easy to use. So while we're specifically talking about telehealth in the context of a public health emergency, it's important to note that telehealth will continue past the pandemic and will continue to have a role in our healthcare system. Whatever that may be, I think it's still to be determined, but I'm really excited to talk today about kind of what a telehealth visit looks like, what it's like for the patient, what it's like for the provider, and I think everybody's really going to enjoy it. Today I'm joined with Margaret Antonucci, who's a psychiatric nurse practitioner with Yale University at the Smilo Tobacco, Tobacco Treatment Hospital. Margaret, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and telling us a little bit about you? Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about utilizing telehealth for tobacco cessation now that you've been doing it for a few months. Yes. So surprisingly, it's actually been going better than we initially thought in that we have been able to reach a lot of patients, some that we might not have been able to get to come into our clinic or come in in person for a visit, but they've been willing to be called by phone or reached by a video visit. So actually, the first month in March when we were working on this, our no-show rate went down. Uh, so there's usually you know, a significant portion of patients that might not come in for a visit for whatever reason. And it seems that when we were reaching them by phone in their home, it was less likely that they would miss the appointment. 
so that was news to us, and it's actually been working well, better than I think we might have anticipated. Uh, smoking is often associated with medical comorbidities and mental health issues, and during this pandemic, what's different, I think, in seeing, quote-unquote, seeing some of these patients is that these people are often having less access to their regular treaters, their primary care providers or other specialists, either from fear of going in person to a doctor's office or the emergency room. So they are actually having less contact with other points of care. So when I'm calling a patient for a, a tobacco treatment session, working with them on trying to stop smoking, I'm also trying to assess and see where they are physically with medical issues that might be going on or how their mental health is holding up, any depression, anything like that. My specialty is in mental health, uh, but I'm also following up with them, you know, doing a, a review of systems to just see how they are overall physically. And then I'm finding myself doing more coordination of care now where I am contacting other providers either through EPIC, which is our electronic health record that we use at Yale, either through EPIC messages, you know, reaching out to uh, a primary care or a specialist, neurologist, or, or another mental health provider, um, and trying to help connect people with other services that they might need but that because they're not seeing somebody in person, they might not be getting. I have a, a couple examples that I could share that. I don't know if we have enough time, but one man, for instance, who had a partial foot amputation and was being seen by a nurse at home, but when I contacted him about smoking, he had been having increasing pain, symptoms of a possible infection, and so I immediately reached out through Epic to his surgeon, and they got him right in and readmitted him to the hospital. So it's, uh, it's a time when people are, you know, not getting as much care as they might be getting outside, you know, the time of the virus. No, that's great, and it seems like you're able to really connect with patients and provide a really vital service. Yeah, and, and another, mental health certainly, you know, because of the stress of the, of the pandemic, mental health issues are, are really exacerbated this time. I've had more than one patient that has let me know that he or she was having some suicidal thoughts, and I was able to immediately reach out and connect the person reconnect the person with, you know, a, a therapist or the psychiatrist and uh, try to get them the help as quickly as possible for what they needed. That's great. So kind of changing gears a little bit, um, it sounds like you're clearly doing some really amazing and important work. Um, but when we kind of think back with the cessation counseling piece of it, you know, I think there's a lot of questions about is telehealth as effective as in-person normal office visits? So do you have any thoughts? I know it's still early to capture any data, but do you have any thoughts about the effectiveness 
of telehealth or of cessation as a telehealth service. Right. So I don't have the data in terms of the numbers for our quit rates or uh, how, you know even reduction rates. I I'm aware, and I, I we have another uh, nurse practitioner who's full time and also is calling patients for these telehealth visits. We have a psychology fellow that works with Dr. Pachito, and they are contacting some patients as well. And I think I think we've all again maybe been a little present, pleasantly surprised that. Uh, it is effective and that we are able to make some connections. We did actually have telehealth uh, prior to the COVID pandemic. I had uh, one gentleman that I saw starting last summer and had been seeing him by video visits for a month uh, for, for helping him with smoking cessation. And he, w- he was able to successfully quit. He quit uh, back in the fall and then Unfortunately, he was, after that, diagnosed uh, with prostate cancer and started having treatments for that. But he did successfully quit and complete our program all by video visit. And that was started back before we had any of the virus, you know, going on. So since then, since we have switched totally telehealth, um, you know, it's as I said, this was, we had been doing these video visits and calls prior, but very, it was definitely just a few, a handful of the minority of visits. Um, now it's all being done that way, you know, because we've been forced to, and the, it seems like we're going to stay for a little while in this model because for the outpatient clinics, this is an outpatient program, and for the outpatient clinics, we are being asked to continue doing this by telehealth so that we're not increasing the numbers of patients that are coming into the clinics because our clinics are specifically cancer centers that we've been working in around the state. Each one is a cancer care clinic and to avoid extra patients coming in and extra exposures, they're asking us to continue the telehealth model. So it is proving to be effective, even with people that we're just speaking with over the telephone, I'm surprised we're able, again, it's how much are we able to connect with the patient, make a rapport. Uh, We always use techniques of motivational interviewing to see where the patient's coming from. Every time that I meet a person over the phone or on video, I ask the person, you know, how were you referred to us? And then after finding out the referral source, I just ask an open question, how can I help you? Because I want to hear what the person has to say about why that person is coming to us. And I always tell them, I know why the doctor's referring you. Why, what can I do for you? What is your goal? What do you want out of this? So to see how the person is intrinsically motivated, what their self-motivation is whether it's their health or doing it for a loved one or to improve their cancer treatments or to save money, all of the above. So, you know, we make that connection. We start working. The intake that we do is an hour long. 
and then follow-ups are about half an hour visits. Okay, that's great. And so you kind of went into this a little bit, but are there any differences between, you know, a normal in-person cessation visit versus a cessation visit via telehealth? Um, I mean, besides the technology, is there anything different that the patient or another provider, if they're interested in doing this, might have to prepare? So, yes, there's one part that we use in person that's very useful. It's actually a CO, carbon monoxide monitor, that we have. It looks like a little breathalyzer that people blow into, but instead of measuring blood alcohol levels, it measures carbon monoxide levels. And it's a very helpful motivational tool as well as an educational tool that we use because we are monitoring how much carbon monoxide is in the patient's uh, bloodstream, the parts per million overall, and then the percentage of their hemoglobin that is blocked up by carbon monoxide instead of carrying oxygen, which is what the body needs. And as I said, it's motivational because people like to see those numbers going down as they're reducing in smoking. They like to blow into the monitor and then say, oh, my number went down. You know, it's kind of a, it's a physical marker of what's happening. And that's something that we can't do over the phone. Also, we have a booklet, a pamphlet that we use that I like to go over in person. It's a good visual tool. I, I like to do a lot of educating when I'm starting the first session with the patient. Um, my background is teaching. I, can't, I was an English teacher for many years before I became a nurse. So I like to do a lot of educating and, and helping motivate patients so that they understand what's happening in their body and all the health benefits that they can achieve and accumulate with the reducing and stopping smoking. So that booklet, I, I give them in person and we look at the visuals of the human body and different things. Um, we can share that electronically with the person, uh, but I don't get to actually hand it to them or go over it in person. Um, you know, there's the, the in-person connection, but as I said, especially with the video, you capture all of the, you know, pretty much all of the nonverbal communication is captured in the video, you know, the, the, the looks, the expression, whatever, intonation, and a lot of it is captured as well just with having a telephone call. So it, it, it works well. It, it really works well. That's great. Um, so one other question I had, just as we think of, you know, the types of patients that you might be seeing, are you running into a lot of, you know, barriers from the patient perspective on using telehealth, whether, whether it be accessing technology or just simply being able to utilize the technology? So, yes, that is issue that sometimes people cannot do a video visit if they don't have an iPad uh, or a smartphone that's able to do it or if they're not signed up for my chart in the EPIC system because our HIPAA requires that we do it through my chart, which is part of the electronic health record EPIC that I was referring to earlier. So that the technology is a little bit of a barrier there. We were hoping to use some of the grant money uh, to get some iPads that we could have available at the clinics for patients to use, but now they're not even coming into the clinics, so we can't really provide the iPads there. 
No, that makes sense. It sounds like you guys are also using the telephone only calls as alternatives for those individuals too. So. Yes, we're using the we're using the technology is um, called Doximity that we're okay. calling through. That's great. So parts of the visit, I I always start out asking, what's the current status? I like to do, as I said, a physical check-in with the people. So I actually do a full review of systems uh, to check out how they're doing overall and then different systems of, you know, how is their cardiac status, how's their breathing, um, just check physically overall how they're doing. And then I also, with each patient, will do a mental status exam to check in with their mood and, uh, again, ask those questions about any thoughts about self-harm and how see how they're coping emotionally and psychologically during these times. And as part of every visit, when I first start checking in with the patients about how they're doing, I ask them about their physical well-being. And while we are not specifically, you know, testing for COVID-19 or anything, I try to do a quick screening of have you had any fever or cough or shortness of breath or any other kinds of symptoms that might be suspicious, and in which case I would ask them to go follow-up call and follow-up with their primary care provider right away. And then I go in and do the history of how have they been doing since the last time we spoke. If it's the first time I'm meeting the person, as I said, it's a longer intake for their history, uh, about their smoking behaviors, when did they start, how much do they currently smoke, how many times have they tried to quit, what do they, what methods have they used to try to quit, to try to quit. How successful have they been? Have they ever successfully quit? You know, what's motivating them now? What caused them to relapse in the past? Because really, we want people to understand that this is a chronic condition. It has periods of relapsing and remitting where people are successfully abstaining from smoking and then other periods where they might relapse and have some cigarettes. So sort of looking at that whole history. And then as I do... The return visits are usually twice a month, every other week. We check in, how's it going, we brainstorm, troubleshoot, you know, what are your triggers, what's triggering you to have a cigarette, um, how are you coping, what are some coping skills, and what are some other activities you can do for relaxation, for exercise, for distraction, and then to see where they are with their level of smoking. So the measuring stick we use is how many cigarettes have you had in the last seven days. And we ask that, and people are really, sometimes people don't keep track, but then by the time we calculate during a visit, I'll go back to the first visit and say, well, the week before you started this program, you had had 210 cigarettes, and now for the week, you've only had 60 cigarettes, or whatever it is. And they'll be quite surprised at the numbers and how it shifts as they're reducing. And that's the overall philosophy I use with people is one of gradual reduction. That's great. And it must be so um, inspiring to see those numbers go down, um, both from a patient perspective as well as for you, the provider. Yes, and that's a big part of my job, if you want to call it. The aspect of almost being like a cheerleader, like, you know, congratulating somebody, celebrating with them, 
this is so great, you know, you must be so proud of yourself, and, and, then, and also validating, a lot of validating of feelings of how difficult it is. Yes, this is the hardest addiction to quit. It's harder to quit smoking than it is to quit heroin, and I've heard that from multiple people who've, who've quit multiple substances. And just sort of validating the difficulty and then celebrating any of the gains in reduction as they're, as they're going down. That's great. And kind of building off of that, are there any ways that you, especially now via telehealth, can help provide patients with the seven FDA-approved cessation medications, or are there additional barriers to doing that? So, unfortunately, I can't provide samples anymore. We had some samples at one point of the nicotine replacement therapy, the NRT patches, and some lozenges or gum that we had, that we were able to share some samples at different times. I can't, I can't pass along any samples now. I, of course, can do all of the prescribing online through the Epic system to the patient pharmacy. Uh, fortunately, depending on their insurance, usually with the private insurances, in all of their wisdom, the private insurance companies not cover over-the-counter patches, gum, or lozenge for nicotine replacement therapy. So that sometimes poses a barrier for patients who cannot afford, you know, the cost of the patch, gum, lozenge. So um, that, unfortunately, is also a barrier. Uh, insurance companies will pay for Shantix, usually, uh, or there's a Nicotrol inhaler and a nasal spray that I prescribe covered by insurance. No, that's great. And that access to the medications is truly a problem and is a challenge, I know, for a lot of patients, um, especially on the lower income scale. Yep. Yep. Fortunately, thankfully, Medicaid actually has been covering the patches and lozenges for people to stop, to be able to stop smoking. That's great. And so those are the end of all of my questions, but I just wanted to ask you if there's anything else you'd like to add or would want people to know um, if they're looking to move to telehealth, you know, during the pandemic, but also recognizing that telehealth is going to stick around for a little bit afterwards. Well, you know, as I say, I'm actually, we were pleasantly surprised and I'm very pleased that we were able to transition and find that we could be effective and still helpful with people and continue, you know, a really useful service for them through different means. And I think that, I think that it is going to continue. I think that it makes it so convenient for the person who is receiving the treatment. You know, they don't, they don't have to leave their home and they can get the counseling. Um, you know, granted, we can't do any a physical assessment, but that the most that we would do at the clinic was a set of vital signs, and um, you know the person's being followed by their primary care for that. But that you are able to reach people, you're able to make a connection. You can connect with somebody over the phone in in a video call, and really share with the person and part of 
struggle and just sort of being able to bear witness to what they're going through, you know, as I said, share in some of the struggles and the victories, and you can do that without physically being in the same room with the person. Thank you. That's really great. I just wanted to say it's because it's been a number of months now, I've been able to work with people from start to finish with their very first intake and work with them and help all the way through their quitting without ever having met the person in person. And it's all happened over the telephone. So it can work and, and really reach a lot of people. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed learning about telehealth. We'll have a new one up soon. Thanks so much. Bye.